Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Judges, and it's chapter 6, and we're going to be reading chapter 6 of Judges, verses 1 through 24. And today, we're introduced to another judge and another series of events about God's people long ago in these rather dark but also interesting times between the leadership of Moses and Joshua and before the monarchy when kings ruled Israel. Here's God's holy and infallible word. I wanted to first read that first little bit just at the end of chapter 5. The land had peace for 40 years. Then chapter 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. Uh, They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. This isn't like sticking something in the microwave. This would have taken hours to prepare, obviously. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, 
place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, the day of the writing of Judges, obviously, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. That's God's word for us, uh, to us this morning, friends. Right as we closed our reading today, and in the very middle of chapter 6, we find this altar that was built to the Lord called The Lord is Peace. And that helps us see what's going on in this portion of Scripture. Uh, the idea of peace comes up very often in the Bible. In fact, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And peace is a regular topic today in our lives, in the world. Everybody, it seems, is always needing and wanting peace and seeking it. Uh, There are a lot of little inspirational sayings about peace. And maybe you've heard some of these. Uh, Some of them, like little sayings, are a bit simplistic. Uh, One, your life becomes a masterpiece when you learn to master peace. Keep calm with essential oils. I feel like essential oils are really about, about peace. An ancient Chinese philosopher, Lao Tzu, said, if you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you're at peace, you're living in the present. Again, a little simplistic, depression, anxiousness, it's a little more complicated than that, but there's general truth there. The Dalai Lama recommends, do not let the behavior of others destroy your inner peace. And Mother Teresa once said, peace begins with a smile. Not only internal peace, but peace in our nation, peace in the world is something we think about, we dream about, movies are made about it, and there are things that politicians promise us. The problem, though, is that the peace in our hearts and lives and in the world is not consistent. Not at all. You maybe heard stats like this. They say that since the beginning of recorded history, there has only been no peace. There's only been peace and no wars going on, about 8% of the total span of history. And they say that more than 8,000 peace treaties in the world have been made only then to be broken. So there's certainly not prevailing peace in our world. And in our own hearts and lives personally, it's one thing to take some of these little helpful sayings about peace. It's one thing to say, I'm going to stay living in the present. It's one thing to say, I'm not going to let anything outside of me destroy my inner peace. But it's something quite different to consistently 
live that way, even if we give it our best shot and give it a lot of effort. But God's word gives us the key to consistent peace, unlike a peace that ebbs and flows depending on our stress level, our circumstances, our moods, the turmoils in the world. In these verses, we're being pointed to how God has made a path to prevailing peace. And we see first why peace gets lost, why we don't have it. We read that the land had peace for 40 years, and that was due to the leadership of judge and prophet Deborah in the account before this, chapters 4 and 5. And you remember that through her, God's word had this powerful impact, first of all, on this guy named Barak, who was sort of sitting in the pew his whole life, but was very, a very lethargic church member. It jolted him to action. And then the word of God also impacted this woman named Jael, who was on the outskirts of God's people. Like she had one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and the word of God sweetly drew her to make a very decisive decision. I guess decisive decisions are decisive. She made a very clear decision to step out of the world and into the church and be part of God's people. That powerful impact of God's word and the actions of Barak and of jail spilled over to the whole nation of Israel, all God's people, so that they had 40 years of peace. But now it's over. In one generation, that peace was lost. Amazing how quickly that could happen. And we read in chapter 6 of Judges that the children of Israel again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years, God gave them over into the hands of an enemy. And so, this typical pattern of Judges continues. And this time, it was a coalition that oppressed Israel, so it would have been especially hard to run them off. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and we read other eastern peoples. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a key thing. Other Eastern people, symbolically and in reality, the East often represents and points to the enemies of God's people in the Bible. Canaan, the promised land they were inhabiting, was West. Esau, son of Adam and Eve, the first murderer, was banished by God to the East. And later on in history, God's people would be dragged east into exile. And and so uh, the line of the serpent serpent, uh, that does battle with the line of the woman out of which Christ was promised, that line of the serpent often comes from the east to do battle with the people of God. And, And this oppression is the worst yet in the book. The enemies stole or destroyed Israel's crop at harvest every year, and they destroyed uh, their animals. And so Israel was completely impoverished. Uh, This people that God was giving this beautiful land to um, had to resort to living in mountain clefts and caves. 
We read here, and it's kind of an interesting little aside, we read for the first time about camels being used in warfare in the Bible. And they were used by Israel's enemy. They're faster than horses. They can carry even more gear than horses. And as recently as 100 years ago during World War I, uh, the Ottoman Empire had a camel company as part of their military. The Israelites, like usual, eventually cry out to God for help. And we expect, because everything else is happening like it has before, we expect a deliverer or a judge to be talked about next. But instead, God first sends them a prophet, a preacher. He, and he, he, we're not given the name of this prophet. And they must have been like, well, how's that going to help us? Uh, God, we want real help. We want a warrior, and you're sending us a preacher? It'd be like you calling me if you need help with your furnace. It'd be like calling your mechanic when your car breaks down at the side of the road, and instead of a tow truck, he sends a philosopher. But God wanted a prophet to come first and remind the people of God's word. That's what prophets especially did, right? Um, and God's word, they would have known it and they would have heard it before, but they must not have truly heard the word because they're not living according to it. And, and husbands are notoriously like this, right? Um, th- their wife is talking, they're nodding their head. It's like, uh-huh, yes, dear. But the words aren't sinking in. We all know that there's a difference between hearing and really listening. And I could give you a few examples in my own life as my life has gone on and more and more stuff needed to be crammed into my head. That's my excuse, at least. I could give you some examples, but I totally forgot what they are. I have no idea what they are anymore. So God's prophet comes unexpectedly, right, before a deliverer, and tells them why this is going on. He tells them why they're at war, why the peace is over. He reminds them what they had heard, but not really heard. God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt and and called his people to worship and follow only him. And the promise was that that would lead to a life of blessing, of peace, inner peace, and it would lead to peace in the land. And the call was keep the covenant relationship, keep and cherish your special relationship with the Lord, make him, make that relationship number one, and all will be well. Break the covenant relationship, don't obey, and things will not go well. Deuteronomy 28 talks about the covenant curses for disobedience. And a little quote from there, if you don't obey, you will be oppressed and robbed, your livestock will be taken from you. That sound familiar? It's exactly what's happening in our reading. And none of this would have been a surprise if they were truly hearing, truly listening to God's word. 
lack of peace, turmoil, curses. This is what the Bible says happens to those who reject the Lord and who do not live their lives according to his ways. And this is how prevailing peace is lost in our own lives too. But the fact is that God has made a path to a peace that passes understanding, the Bible says. When we say, I need you, Lord, God brings us peace even in our darkest hour. And already back in these ancient times, God was busy, he was active, restoring a perfect path to peace that had been lost ever since humankind fell into sin back in the Garden of Eden. Israel lost peace, but next we're shown how peace is recovered, how peace is recovered. God's prophet ended his message with, but you have not listened to me. Strangely, the very next words in the Gideon account are, the angel of the Lord came. And this appearance of the angel of the Lord, despite the fact that the people were not listening, shows us that God initiates the recovery of peace in our lives. God always initiates the recovery of peace in our lives. And the Bible, the people had cried out to God for help, but that wasn't a repentance of sin. They weren't sorry. They just wanted peace from their problems, and they wanted it without a relationship with the Lord. But that can't really happen. And the crazy thing is that our God comes in to save them and bring peace anyway. And, and that's how God consistently works. And you and I know that in our own hearts and lives. Uh, in Romans 5, it says, While we were still sinners... God showed his love for us by sending Jesus. And while we were enemies of God, God gave us peace with him through the death of his son. Before you and I repented, before we reached out to God, he came to save us. And his spirit started a work in our hearts uh, before we reached out to him in faith. His spirit's prior work is what makes us able to respond. And, and, and we see it here. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and he says he's the one God has chosen to deliver God's people from their enemies. And the sign, how we know that God is already at work in Gideon, is how he responds to this. He says, I'm too weak to do what you ask. You know, my, the tribe of Manasseh were, were not much and... and in my clan in Manasseh, it's the weakest clan. I'm the weakest member of my family. Is, is this a total lack of faith? Is he scared when he should be depending on the Lord? What's going on? I think this is about a holy humility. It's how he should be responding, in other words. Gideon knows his weakness and his frailty. And that's the type of person that God can work with. Not the arrogant, not the prideful, not those who think they're smart enough, they're tough enough, 
to get it done on their own. Not those who think that with sheer willpower they can have a life of peace with God and with those around them. But instead, God uses and he comes to those who are at the end of the rope, who know they absolutely cannot receive salvation, who know that they absolutely cannot do life or battle sin and the devil alone, but need the strength of peace, of the peace of God behind them, in them, around them, and leading them. And that's what the sign in verse 17 is about. Gideon's trying to figure out who exactly he's been talking with. Uh, He has a suspicion, but he doesn't know for sure. Um, And we already know who he's talking to because the writer of the book, if you kept close attention, has already interchanged the angel of the Lord with the Lord. In verse 14 and verse 16, you can see that. This is God himself come down, not an angel. The angel of the Lord is God himself come down. And in particular, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, before Bethlehem, before he assumed human flesh at his conception in Mary's womb. And he visits his people from time to time already in the Old Testament times. When when the sacrifice Gideon prepares is burned up, well, then Gideon knows without a doubt that he's been talking with the Lord himself, not just a special guy of some sort, but the Lord himself. His response, you notice, is basically terror. I've been talking to the Lord this whole time, the Holy One of Israel. He's thinking, I don't deserve to live. I deserve to be burned up like the sacrifice. And and so again, it's an acknowledgement of his sin and his unworthiness in the face of perfect holiness. The two don't belong together. They can't belong together. Um, Us living in this time of God's grace after Jesus' coming... We almost can't appreciate fully this response of Gideon. The terror before the intense awesomeness of God himself. But only knowing this sense of fear and trembling that sinners should have before the Lord, only capturing a sense of that can make us fully appreciate God's grace in our lives and the fact that our broken relationship with him has been restored at his initiative. The angel of the Lord says, peace, do not be afraid. And then Gideon builds this altar. The Lord is peace. And so God's initiative brings personal inner peace to Gideon as he encounters the Son of God. And as he receives the strength he needs. And in a similar way, when we meet the same son, Jesus, we receive the same peace. In years past, uh, believers, and I'm not even sure if you would identify or know this language, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because I think it's important. In years past, believers would talk about the difference between and historic faith and a true faith. 
And historic faith is what Gideon had originally. He knew about God's wonders, saving acts in Egypt, what he did in history, but Gideon didn't know God. He didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. And we can know the Bible all about the Lord, but not know God personally, not have a relationship with him. Satan and the demons have an historic faith. They know the facts, but that doesn't mean they're saved. And that's true with us too. Without personally meeting the Lord, we don't have a true faith. And then we don't have salvation or a true peace. But Gideon gained this, and and so can we today, through meeting the Son of God. And so God was already here making that perfect path to peace. It wouldn't be consistent, it wouldn't be prevailing in the Old Testament times. God's people would lose it again and again as the Old Testament goes forward. But God was already here on the path to sending his only son to win that prevailing peace for all his people through his death and resurrection. And all who call on his name can have that peace All who call on the Prince of Peace, Jesus, can have that peace now for every circumstance of our lives forever, a prevailing peace. And this can happen if we would just humbly acknowledge our need, our total inability on our own, and put our trust in the Lord God. Next week, we're going to continue. We're going to see where this peace leads the difference it makes, and how it can be strengthened. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know as we are honest with ourselves and as we think about our own hearts that um, our, our peace in this world ebbs and flows. In fact, in the, in the world as a whole, uh, it mostly flows toward lack of peace, problems. Despite all the promises of our politicians, uh, despite all the different types of governments and rulers uh, throughout the world, uh, we remain in a situation where people are mostly overall at war with one another, uh, whether person to person, enmity or, or real military enmity. Lord, thank you that, that you have come to give a, a peace that will last, a prevailing peace. Thank you for how we've seen in your word, in the book of Judges, uh, studying your ancient people, how you were already on the path toward creating that perfect, prevailing peace in Jesus. In him, we have our peace, and Lord, we, we, we vow and we promise to again, or maybe for the first time for someone here, to give him our lives, uh, to trust him with our all, and so to receive a peace. And bless us next week as we see 
uh, some of the implications of this peace and how in our lives, day by day, week by week, that peace is strengthened especially. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.